Hello, this is the Book on Fire podcast. I'm Dave, and welcome back to our ongoing discussion of Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch. This episode is a continuation of our discussion of Chapter 2. It's a little bit shorter than last week's. In this section, we turn to the project of colonization. So I'm just going to drop you right in as Janet and I uh, continue on to the end of chapter two. All right. Well, we're back to finish up by talking about the last few sections of the chapter here in which we turn to talking about not just Europe, but about colonization and the European colonies. Yeah. So as the land is being expropriated back home in England in the story, or back home to our proletariat protagonists, over in the, the it, old country, the old country, right? Uh, in the colonies, a wholesale expropriation of land was happening at the same time from indigenous folks there. By the early 1500s, uh, which is only a few decades into the colonial project, okay? Yeah. By the early 1500s, there were nearly a million indigenous and African slaves already working, being forced to work in the colonies. Yeah. You know, and that was a drop in the bucket of what harm was to be done, but that was the beginning. So already there were that many people enslaved to the burgeoning capitalist system. And Federici makes a great effort here to explain that capitalism is absolutely foundationally built upon slavery as an institution, that it could not exist without that huge buildup of resource there at the beginning. Yeah. And slavery for sure, but also just the project of colonization Mm -hmm. in general, of which slavery was a huge part. Right. But the takeover of land... Mm -hmm the displacement and sometimes enslavement of indigenous population, and then all of that being funneled into the European economies. It's been argued, I think, convincingly that this shift that we've been talking about this whole time, where the capitalist class was trying to institute this new capitalist order. They were they were the would-be capitalist class, but they were trying to sort of create this new system, you know, we kind of make it sound like they had it all on paper worked out and then they were just trying to make it happen. But really, it was like very ad hoc and improvisational. But this construction of a new way of life, the demolition of the old way and the molding of the proletariat into forms that were compatible with this new method of production, it's been argued couldn't have even been possible if colonization hadn't been a factor, mm-hmm. hadn't been a resource that the ruling class could use. Mm-hmm. You know, because even just at the material level, just to take one example, like the gold and silver plundered from the Americas was part of what paid the mercenaries to put down the urban and rural revolts Mm -hmm. in Europe where the people were like raising hell against their exploitation, you know. So, yeah. And just how for capitalism to emerge or be created, it had to accumulate a lot of resources in the form of territory and bodies and laborers. Um, Federici points out that every time the economy is in crisis, it has to have another big push to gain more resources and accumulate more. And that generally is done through a big push of colonization and often slavery accompanies that still today, you know? Right. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this whole season, we she talks about how living in Nigeria when the IMF was restructuring the country, she got to see this firsthand. 
you know? And what I think is worth pointing out right now as we're reading this in 2020 is that while there's a little bit of territory left, one could argue that the global economy is in such crisis because it's run out of room to expand and colonize further, you know? And so, you know, what's left would be, say, drilling in the Arctic, taking out the rest of the rainforest, Mm -hmm. uh, displacing the rest of the uncontacted indigenous people. Um, so there are some spaces and areas that have not yet succumbed to the machine, mm -hmm. the extractive machine of capitalism, but there's not a lot left. There's very little of the earth that has not been disturbed yet. Mm -hmm. And we are reaching a crisis point because capitalism demands continuous growth. Yeah, they're kind of running out of edges. Right. They did that that big raid into like our private lives and our attention and everything with the invention of like smartphones and the internet and social media <laughs> and how much money was made off of like ad revenues and selling right. data yes. and selling data on our person you know because that was the territory too that, right. yeah yeah that was like kind of enclosed and privatized and stuff and but who saw that coming right you know? i mean it's not a huge save for capitalism it's mm -hmm. not like capitalism is going to get another 100 years off of the gains made by social media or something like that's not going to happen but, but they are getting more labor because they have they so much work is done now within the technological world mm -hmm. and people work on their phones they work on their computers they can work from anywhere and uh, many people have multiple jobs so one place i guess it is true that capitalism is expanding is into creating a work life that can happen at any moment all the time and that it's hard to turn off right and you know like i know that you told me when you're in europe that they have these like right what is it called like their right to disconnect yeah there's laws in some places that say that you can't require your employees to like answer emails on the weekend <laughs> or right. while they're on vacation mm -hmm. you know or to be in communication with the workplace yeah right but in the in the u.s we don't have those laws right yeah um, and some people are required to keep working all the time when they're not at work, when they're not asleep, basically. Mm -hmm. And might be penalized for not responding to emails over the weekend. Um, right. right. Anyway, the point is, is that the 40-hour work week looks pretty nice to a lot of people right about now. Yeah, capitalism <laughs> has to keep making these incursions. Right. And develop new ways of expanding to create markets right. and create. And as physical territory and material territory is expanded, I think that you're right that the expansion is happening in other planes as well. So mm -hmm. it's an expand it, right. our minds for one thing, but also like our time. Yeah. And that territory is being given up all the time. Yeah. And we're enlisted as unpaid workers creating content. Totally. <laughs> for like Instagram to sell ads against. Right. You know, like this kind of thing. I mean, just whole new terrains of That's capitalist so expansion. True. That's so true. Where... In old school media, a TV station would have to make shows mm -hmm. to sell ads against the shows, you know, to make money. Mm -hmm. And then, but now it's like, we're the show and we do it for free. Right. And the Instagram feed is full of all of this content that we just put out there and they just sell ads against it all. And so that becomes commodified too. Right. Just like your memories, your socializing with your friends or whatever becomes maybe not privatized, but at least commodified. Commodified, yeah. for sure. And you become used to less and less privacy mm -hmm. within that. So there's also like that territory being ceded. Yeah. Um, but 
that all that stuff would come later. <laughs> yeah, much later. Um, but what we've seen back here at the beginning of the colonial project was the rise of a mode of production <laughs> with its epitome being the plantation system. Yeah. That would become foundational for capitalism in general. Yeah, definitely. So the plantation itself, which was developed within the colonial project to extract as much as much of the natural resources from the labor, enslaved labor and coerced labor there as possible. Um, that system of labor was exported back home to Europe and put in place there as well. And within that, the plantation system influenced how capitalism would develop at home as well in several ways. One of them is that the similar similar forms of labor management were exported back to the way work would be run back home in the colonizers' lands. Uh, like industrial yeah. factory, like in the factory, would have similar types of surveillance as mm -hmm. would happen on like an agricultural plantation yes. in the colonies. Right, right, right. And the length of the work days and the inclusion of children in the workforce. Uh huh. Um, also, the plantation model of exporting all of the fruits of the labor, all of the commodities that are produced or exported, right. that did not happen until the colonial system got into place, mm -hmm. was put into place, because as we mentioned earlier, people tended to keep their agricultural goods around in their communities or on the manor or in yeah. the lands around, you know? Yeah. Um, but after colonization began and the capitalist class or the burgeoning capitalist class saw how fruitful it was to run a plantation and export the goods and keep very little for sustenance, Yeah. that became the way. So the extractive practices of settler colonial capitalism were brought home. And then eventually, even things like policing, mm -hmm. this would come a little bit later because the early police forces were built on the slave patrols. And so the policing and surveillance of enslaved Africans was the seat of the police force. Mm -hmm. uh, and that didn't really get going until a little bit of a later stage of the development of chattel slavery in the North American colonies. But, but then, of course, now policing is universal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it exists in Europe and in everywhere where people are told that they're free. There's this term that she doesn't use in here called Foucault's boomerang. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that modes of suppression and control mm -hmm. that are used in colonies, they are developed there. And then they boomerang back to the mainland, the mainland or the home country and are used against the population there mm -hmm. to suppress unrest. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, as as long as we're talking about endless growth, I also want to talk about endless war. Oh, great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, earlier when we were talking about things that changed between the feudal system and the capitalist system, one thing that changed greatly and permanently was how war was fought. Mm -hmm. And back in the feudal times, the peasants were the soldiers. And so this is so hard to imagine, kind of, but... Basically, war was waged according to the agricultural schedule. So, you know, a lord would be like, well, we're not going to attack this other manor until you guys plant the seeds and then we'll, we'll roll out. Then we'll come back by harvest time, you know? Yeah, makes sense. Well, it does make sense, except that it's like a funny, if everyone knows that's when you're going to come, is not very surprising. Uh, um, that's all I mean. lose the element of surprise. Yeah. It doesn't seem strategic as yeah. far as like war fighting goes, yeah. but maybe I'm colored by endless war. So what do I know? 
But back then, war was very, um, it was itinerant. It wasn't constant. It came and went. And it was according to the peasants' schedule because the peasants had to be the soldiers. And there was a lot of mutiny and like people not staying on the job because they had other stuff to do, you know? <laughs> um, but after the price revolution and once there was such extreme poverty that being a soldier was like a job that actually paid, mm-hmm. partially thanks to gold and silver brought in by the Americas. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there started to be standing armies that just did that full time. And you had career soldiers for the first time, besides the aristocracy. Right. And the career soldiers were used to put down uprisings, peasant uprisings, and the working class uprising happening after capitalist relations were established. Uh, But also soldiers were used as fighters in the colonial effort. And so as the colonies expanded and capitalism kept reaching out its tentacles more and more, the soldiers were also part of that conquering army and all of the new territories. And so whenever the expansion was happening alongside it, if there was any kind of resistance, there was also war happening there too. Mm -hmm. And we have been in the cycle of endless war since then. Right. Somewhere in the globe has been an ongoing colonial struggle. Yeah. Um, and one could argue that the United States empire has been committing its own colonial wars since the taking of Hawaii and the incursion into the Philippines, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's not like whatever people believe about U.S. exceptionalism, we fit right into that too. Right, right. Yeah, and she has this thing in here too where doesn't she talk about how war became about totally vanquishing your enemy oh right yeah you know not just about colonial expansion and about putting out uprisings but even when war was just fought between rulers Mm -hmm. but instead of this kind of polite sort of warfare that you were talking about at the beginning it became this like totally devastate Mm -hmm. and conquer the other you're right um and that led to like these much longer campaigns with a lot more attrition right and it was had a really big impact on the workers who were like enlisted to fight in those wars and whose were living amongst the warring factions mm-hmm. too. Right. Also, the international division of labor, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that becomes a feature of emerging capitalism now too, mm-hmm. where like agricultural commodity production is happening in, say, the colonies of certain commodities mm-hmm. that are produced then on the mainland. And so there's different workers geographically divided that are producing different commodities that are all networked together in one system. Yeah. So it's something that we take for granted now, but that wasn't happening before, right? Mm-hmm. Like pretty much all the commodities, all of the things that a population would need, most of them would be produced like within the area, within the region, down to the furniture and everything in Europe before, but now you have something quite different. And in a chapter whose focus is the construction of divisions mm-hmm. and the construction of difference, mm-hmm. and we've spent a lot of time talking about gender divisions, mm-hmm. and now we have geographical divisions where the workers who are exploited by the ruling class, they're not even all in one place. Right. Right. They exist under different regimes of exploitation in different places separated by an ocean. Mm-hmm. And then that geographical division is also an impediment to banding together to do something about your exploitation. 
And what we're also going to see is the eventual construction of racial differences, Mm -hmm. which would be another impediment. We've got this system of production that now includes these colonies and an international division of labor, but all linked in to this one emerging economic system. And at the center of it, again, is the wage of the male European worker, Mm -hmm. you know, and and. So I think this is kind of an interesting thing in here that Federici is detailing, just like she talked about how the labor of women in the European household was just kind of folded in to the wage of the male worker, right? We talked about that, where like the wage of the male worker is kind of like the motor of the household. And so the male wage was used to mobilize the free labor of women. Mm -hmm. And then a similar relationship happens with enslaved workers in the colonies because the wage earners in Europe were the consumers of the commodities that were being produced in the colonies. Mm -hmm. And so the wage paid to the male working people, working wages in Europe was used to mobilize the labor of people who were under them. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that that's an interesting way of looking at it. Right. You know, it's a tech, it's a technique of Mm -hmm. capitalism, right? That you can mobilize resources and labor by going through a privileged class Mm. and giving them resources. Right. And that's a whole calculus that people were starting to figure out at this point. So the commodity element was there at the beginning, like at the consumer end. Yeah, it's kind of the the consumer end. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right, right. You can see the emergence of a consumer mindset. Mm-hmm. happening here. But Federici's careful to have us realize that just because the European proletariat was tied in with these hyper-exploited workers, right? I mean, because they're exploited workers already, but these hyper-exploited workers in the colonies, the European proletariat is tied in with them and is a market for the products mm-hmm. that enslaved workers and indentured servants and stuff uh, were producing that we shouldn't then conclude that the proletarians were the beneficiaries of this relationship mm-hmm. because for lots of reasons, but because in all of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing the construction of a system in which it's really hard for any of the subgroups of exploited workers in the system to throw off their exploitation, you know, partially because of these divisions, mm-hmm. you know, so the fact that European proletarians benefit, in scare quotes, by by receiving the goods that enslaved people are producing, mm-hmm. by being the ones who can buy them, that in fact makes it harder for the European proletariat to be able to put together a coalition that would overthrow the system. Mm-hmm. Right, because of all of these divisions mm-hmm. and hierarchies that are being set up. Yeah. Oh, also slavery held down the wages oh, right. of workers in Europe. Mm-hmm. And she says, we can't think it's a coincidence that it was only after slavery was abolished mm-hmm. in the colonies did European workers' wages rise right. and they won the right to organize. Mm-hmm. You know, So the fact that there were enslaved people on the other side of the ocean. On the other side of the ocean yeah. that were like... Well, and also like on the supply end, the supply of, say, like if you were just talking about textiles, mm-hmm. uh, then the supply of cotton would be huge Yeah, uh, because that work was forced and free. 
Yeah. You know, so like when you have unpaid labor right. that is supplying one part of the chain, mm-hmm. it devalues the rest. It devalues all of the other yeah. labor in the pool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So during this time period, not only did the ruling class in Europe work hard to control the working class and to keep down any uprisings or resistance that were erupting, they also worked hard to prevent the migration of proletariats to the colonies unless the people were chosen by them. Uh, part of what was going on during this time was life in Europe was not great for the working class at all. And stories began to leak back from the colonies of like lands without masters, lands without toil, you know, and even though this was an idealized story that did not include the indigenous people who were there, people still started to get sort of a um, fantasy of what might be possible if they could get away from their masters. And so there started to be uh, a desire to flee happening. And that was definitely squashed and controlled because there was a consciousness among the ruling class that if enough people, enough proletariats were there, they would probably work with the indigenous folks and the enslaved Africans to form communities because that's what in fact did happen when there were white folk, poor whites put in the colonies. In general, the proletariats who were brought over um, to the colonies in the Americas and also Australia and Tasmania were people who were vagrants, who were in the workhouses, who were in debtors' prisons. So there was a lot of there were a lot of people in prison for debt at that point. Uh, sex workers were also brought over sometimes to service the debtors and just to service probably the people who were in charge of the colonies. Um, and so those were some of the folks who were brought over. Generally, they were in bonded labor, so they were required to work for free until they bought their own freedom. And for all intents and purposes, the first period of time in the colonial U.S., or what was to become the United States, there was not a lot of difference between enslaved Africans and indigenous servants who were from Europe. As far as their legal status. As far as their legal status, what? Yeah, because the Africans, at least in the early days, theoretically could own land. Right. And could earn their freedom. As well, right. As well, just mm-hmm. like the indentured servants coming from Europe. Right. You know, had few rights, were bonded in servitude, mm-hmm. but could earn their freedom and could hope to one day own land of their own. So what you see, if you look back at the historical record from this time period in all of the colonies, is that the ruling class was right. Wherever there were indentured white servants uh, and African workers who were indentured or enslaved, either one, and indigenous peoples, that generally all of those people saw what they had in common more than they saw their differences. And they saw that they were numerous and they often worked together. And so the ruling class saw this was a threat. They saw that this inevitable collaboration was happening and decided to construct a system to keep those people from collaborating by creating race and by giving the white servant indentured servants privileges that the african enslaved people did not have yeah there's a she actually returns to the tempest in here Uh do you remember that part yeah that's kind of cool um she returns to the tempest 
because the Tempest has a sequence where Caliban actually, you know, who's the wild native mm-hmm. guy of the island, is actually like in league with the two low class Europeans who shipwrecked on the ship against Prospero, who's the magician who kind of runs the place, and then the like wealthy high class people who were on the boat. So she reminds us that, like, this from The Tempest is actually, this is William Shakespeare talking about that, like, talking about (laughs) referencing the tendency for Mm -hmm. these various forms of exploited people to be able to find common cause, Mm -hmm. you know? And then in The Tempest, their scheme is kind of broken up and everybody's sorry at the end and they go back to their masters and ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Because that's also the kind of person that Shakespeare was. He was a... Or he knew who wrote his checks. He was a tool of the working... I mean, of the ruling class. Yeah. Like, basically, because that's who wrote his checks. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's been said that it maybe wasn't until Bacon's Rebellion, Mm -hmm. which was 1675, which was one of these coalitions. Yeah. An uprising in the British colonies. Uh, so far, what we've talked about is like heavy on the British right. side of colonization. Um, Federici also spent some time talking about the Spanish side as well, um, and a little bit about Brazil. But, but anyway, that it wasn't until Bacon's Rebellion in the later 1600s uh, that the effort to draw racial boundaries didn't really get rolling until then, mm-hmm. you know. And weren't fully drawn until the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So it took over 100 years to make that happen. But that's when you start seeing chattel slavery. Right. In the way that we usually think about slavery on this continent being mm-hmm. practiced where slaves were frank property of their masters and could be traded like property. And where the descendants of slaves were also slaves mm-hmm. owned for life by their masters and, you know, all of this. If you don't know much about the creation of race and how race race was especially used in the foundation of this country to prevent solidarity and to keep people from working together for the common good and to acknowledge their status Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the machine, then we recommend a Seeing White podcast that's from Seen on Radio. That series has some really good episodes on this that I learned a lot from and I could stand to read again. Actually, maybe we can link to those. Yeah, I can put a link to that in the notes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're talking about is a series called Seeing White about the construction of whiteness and how whiteness works in society. And it has a lot of history in it yeah. that Janet's referring to. But yeah, part of what we learned through all of this is that just like Janet was saying, criminalized, exploited white European workers when they were working alongside enslaved Africans or indigenous people they quickly saw their conditions to be similar enough that they could form these alliances. Mm -hmm. And that happened all the time, rather than seeing themselves as like in league with the the white property owners, the European property owners, because they came from the same, they hailed from the same homeland or Mm -hmm. they spoke the same language or they had the same color of skin or something. You know, that was not where their allegiances lied. It was so often with these foreigners, people who they had little in common with other than the commonality of their exploitation, often couldn't speak the language with, you know, all of that, but still across all of those divisions would form allegiances or at least form coalitions.
at the end of this chapter, Federici explores some of the manifestations of gender and sex and class in the colonies. We talked a little bit previous to this about the exchange of methods between the colonies and the homeland for the colonizers. And she's talking here about what types of, some types of gender enforcement could look like in the colonies and then some forms of resistance to that. One thing, part that's pretty interesting is about the exportation of the nuclear family as a means of instilling the concept of private property in indigenous people. And this part's pretty disturbing, but interesting. Yeah, right. Because the nuclear family, having been kind of invented as this model for European life, was now being exported right. and enforced and somehow was associated with private property and trade. Right. You know, which is, I mean, we've been talking about that kind of this whole time, mm-hmm. but it it's interesting to me that the actors in that time period were, were like, you that. can't have one without the other right. or something. They were conscious well, of that. It kind of makes sense in this way that they encountered the priests and the governors of the colonies and traders even um, all recognized that there was this absence of a concept of private property. Right. And that land was hailed in common. It might not even be, and it was more like a territory, you know? And and they saw that was missing. They saw nuclear families were missing. And they saw that jealousy and scarcity among love, about love, was also missing. Yeah, and maybe scarcity in general. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because there was abundance. Right. Um, So I guess they thought this must all go together or something. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting is there's a some transcripts from some Jesuit priests in what was to become called Canada and the Nascapi people. And there, the Jesuits actually were working to enforce the idea of the nuclear family and the father as the controlling unit of women and children. And there's some just really telling quotes from this exchange. When when is this? Mid-17th century. The a Jesuit priest named Lejeune is talking to a Nascapi man. Uh, so this is the transcript from the Jesuit priest Lejeune. I told him it was not honorable for a woman to love anyone else except her husband. And at this evil being among them, he himself was not sure that his son who was present was his son. He replied, thou hast no sense. You French people love only your children, but we love all the children of our tribe. I began to laugh seeing that he philosophized in horse and mule fashion. Which that last one, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means either. Yeah. But the Jesuit thinks that the funny part is what the native person said. Yeah. When I think a lot of us could read that and be like, oof. Yeah. (laughs) Like that was a pretty good comeback. Totally good comeback where he's just like, you only care about your own. You only love your own children. Yeah. You love all the children. Right. I mean, he he was seeing pretty clearly at that. What was happening. And I think that that's such a an excellent quote to just say how clearly indigenous folks saw the differences between the cultures and the limitations of the culture that was being enforced upon them. Uh, Because you can see this, that people didn't actually care whose kids they were helping raise. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that was not important. And we know from a lot of documents of this initial contact that many of the first nations had women had a lot uh, more autonomy could leave partnerships easier. Uh, there was more collective child rearing, and most resources were held in common. 
And so the Jesuits were seeing that they, if they wanted there to be an idea of private property to improve their trade relations, they needed to change those relationships. And then also the Jesuits in this situation attempted to train the Nascapi people to practice corporal punishment of their children as part of the practice. And this also seemed key to them to private property. Yeah. Um, and the quote around that is... Well, it says, there's a passage where it says, the Jesuits' greatest victory was persuading the Nascapi to beat their children, believing that the, quote, savages' excessive fondness for their offspring was the major obstacle to their Christianization. Oof. Like, what? Yeah. No, I mean, just the glaringness of all of this is yeah. is is still kind of shocking to read. Right. Even now when we're, a lot of us are so familiar with the brutality of Right. The colonization and Christianization of indigenous America. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how many, yeah. how many facets there were to instating control and domination. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. So like the context for this, I don't know if you, how much you told that, but it's where the colonists were trying to establish trading relations with these people. And it was, for whatever reason, it was the men of the tribe who were most interested in trading. Mm -hmm. And the dynamics of that, I'm unclear on. And so there was an incentive for the men to listen to these guys <laughs> because yeah. they were the yeah. ones that were like trying to make this happen, uh -huh. you know. But first, the Jesuits had to teach them to appreciate property, property, mm -hmm. what they called instilling an instinct for property. Right. You know, before they could, in the eyes of the Jesuits, be reliable trading partners. Right. So, yeah, just the logic of capitalism being tied to people as property mm -hmm. as like the first wave of maybe not the first wave of colonization, but like a vanguard of colonization being these Jesuit priests mm -hmm. that were trying to enforce the right morals yeah. that would enable profiteering to exist. And also the recognition that the family unit was really crucial as an economic unit to this burgeoning economic system yeah it's really interesting right um that there was some kind of recognition of that also this laid the groundwork once you have this family unit identified as a key component of the whole system then you start to see on the state or colonial level the system of allotment like giving a family a little piece of land that they get to have and mm. and then putting a man in charge of that when in many of these tribal situations women would have, or the matriarch of the family would be more likely to be in charge of the resources if there were, and they weren't allotted in little groups per family either because there was an extended family tribal right. yeah. sharing system. I want to add here that this is another case where um, if Federici had been doing a more queer-eyed version of history here, she would have also acknowledged that the enforcement of heteronormative practices and identities in this time period was pretty brutal as well. And there's extensive documentation of many tribes having multiple gender roles, more than two, sometimes as many as eight, probably more than that. That's just what was recorded. And many gender roles that defy categorization now that we can that we can attempt to translate to something that means something in contemporary words or that to more of the like settler mindset of what queer terms for this would be. But there were many kinds of genders in many of the tribes and gender generally was more fluid in these situations where you at least had more than two choices 
and who you might be. And the settler colonial forces saw this as also the work of the devil or a sign of being against nature and against God. And in some cases, whole tribes were wiped out when these generals were seen. This was seen as an excuse for massacres, for heavy punishment, um, and for eradication of some tribes. And definitely, as the assimilation process was being enforced, the bi- gender binary was enforced as well. And uh, indigenous folks are recognizing that. There's a large recognition of this now. Uh, actually, I was just listening to the new For the Wild podcast interview with Dr. Kim Tallbear, who we love and we've talked about in last season as well. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Tallbear, in that episode of For the Wild, speaks so well, as always, on the nuclear family as a colonial device of control and the gender binary as a colonial device of control. Mm-hmm. And she expresses the... Um, and heteronormativity. And heteronormativity, right. Yeah. And uh, she talks about that really well, better than I can here. So I highly recommend... And that monogamy. And monogamy, right. Because a lot of it is about that. Actually. That's true. She is talking about monogamy a lot there. Um, and how many of these heteronormative practices were introduced to eradicate indigenous culture and to make better conforming trade partners. Yeah. And some of this was done under the name of Christianity. But as you can see in this passage around basically introducing child abuse, (laughs) you know, it's also to create better controlled subjects, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. And a patriarchal system. And to pave the way for capitalist economics. Right. And it all goes together. And it's all tied. Yeah. (laughs) Oof. Goddamn. Another thing that's going on in this um, last part of this chapter is Federici spent some time focusing on the experience of women in the colonies, mostly African women, but also white women from Europe. Indigenous women don't make a really strong appearance here. But she starts off by asking, you know, and this is kind of part of her larger investigation of what this section is called, like, which is sex, race, and class in the colonies. So investigating these divisions, she starts the section off by asking, like, hearkening back to what we were talking about from the Tempest, what if Caliban's conspiracy had been a conspiracy of women involving his mother, Sycorax, the witch, you know, she wants to spend some time talking about what specifically was going on in the world of women in the colonies. She also has a lot of stuff in here that I thought was really interesting about that suggests the realities of what she calls recomposition mm-hmm. of relations, specifically among women in the colonies of different origins and different races and different cultures and backgrounds. And like by recomposition, you know, she's talking about how people were displaced. Even the white Europeans who came over were displaced from their homeland, you know, were trying to make their way in a new situation that was strange and alien to them. And, of course, indigenous lifeways were being, like, really transformed and rent apart and Africans captured, brought over. So that's like a decomposition or like Mm -hmm. a tearing apart of culture through displacement and transportation. Uh, But then the recomposition that she's talking about is like the emergence of sort of new hybrids and cultural forms Mm -hmm. that are happening among people who are living side by side and sometimes working together. And 
Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it takes the form of these uprisings that have gone into the pages of history, like Bacon's Rebellion or something where, you know, like violent taking up of arms against the masters. But we also should be thinking about just the everyday acts of recomposition and just like sharing culture and syntheses. Part of what she talks about in here, just kind of pointing towards that stuff. She spends a couple paragraphs talking about the emerging new forms of popular magic mm-hmm. that were happening in the colonies where indigenous American practices, you know, European folk magic and African magic and religion were being like shared and mixed together among all of these people and emerging in new forms. And there's even a there's even a quote about some of these belief systems and practical haze of magic running parallel to what was being taught by the church, you know, so coexisting with the Christianity that was being imposed at that time and melding in such a way that it quickly became impossible to distinguish what was Indian, quote unquote, what was, you know, Spanish and what was African in the new systems of magic that were being formed. And we know this, I mean, even today, if you know anything about like hoodoo in the Americas, it's a system of folk conjuration that shares and incorporates a lot of elements of Mm -hmm. European, African, and indigenous, you know, so these things have persisted all the way Mm -hmm. up to today. And they speak to this like cross-pollination that's happening among, you know, like low, low on the pecking order, like low in the social hierarchy, Mm -hmm. people who are coexisting with one another. And uh, that's just one example. There's also some great stuff in here about the lives of African women in the Caribbean and the kinds of strength that they developed, like cultural strength and kind of solidarity amongst themselves and then also like material strength partially from the fact that in a lot of places they were allowed to grow their own food and provide for themselves in that way and to even sometimes sell some of their food at the market so there was this culture that was created of african women in the caribbean who were who were enslaved but still being able to go to the market and have a community with other women like them and then, you know, coexisting with white women who are maybe, you know, also indentured servants or quite poor and how the influence of the Caribbean black women, like how their culture influenced the whole cultural sphere of the Caribbean, black and white, and about how even the masters, even the wealthy whites in the Caribbean, the slave owners, their culture was impacted by the activity of African women acting as healers and seers and experts in magical practice in the households of these people. I think all of this material is really cool in the book and that she pays a lot of attention to here. A a lot of it is citations from uh, the work of Barbara Bush, who wrote an influential book called Slave Women in Caribbean Society uh, that came out in 1990. But it comes away with like what we get to by the end of the chapter is a chapter that is filled with dispossession and violence and colonization and patriarchy. We come around at the end to an image of, to an image of enslaved African women in the Caribbean forming this groundwork 
this like really fertile and solid ground of resistance and cultural strength mm -hmm. despite their enslaved position mm -hmm. by having a community of women who talk to each other shared news shared knowledge grew food provided were healers and seers magical practitioners for their communities sometimes even that work spilling over into the white population as well and to the point where poor white women were imitating the culture the speech and the practices of these african women mm -hmm. and what federici sees here i'm thinking is how this work of cultivating the everyday nourishment and cultural connections and transmission and sharing food and cultivating food, you know, is the backbone of resistance. Mm -hmm. And that this is something that, you know, especially in the era that we are talking about here is like increasingly a female gendered type of work, mm -hmm. you know, to do. But that there's, you know, strength in that and that women in these roles are creating the foundation that more active resistances need to even exist or to mm -hmm. even get launched. Right. And we can acknowledge that that form of care work mm -hmm. is something that is finally now starting to be actually get the acclaim that it needs and, and to be seen as you're as you're describing it uh, as the backbone of all forms of resistance. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was talking with Janet about this earlier. I think that like one of the, because it's making me think about our current time. Mm -hmm. And I do think that one of the positive developments about the cultures of resistance that are active now is that care work in all its forms, mm -hmm. whether that's feeding people, healing people, childcare, dealing with community conflict and accountability, like all of these forms of care are increasingly recognized as foundational to what the work of resistance actually is. Right. You know, and that just getting in the streets or, you know, like the stuff that looks more like fighting, mm -hmm. like uprising, rah, you know, isn't portrayed as all that it is, mm -hmm. you know, or what's most important. I still think that we have some work to do as far as like distributing the work of care more equal among the genders. Mm -hmm. But what I can say I think is happening is that that work is getting a little more credit mm -hmm. now for being foundational to mm -hmm. revolutionary work. Right. Yeah. You agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Should I read this quote? Yes. So this, yeah, I also appreciate that Federici ends this pretty harsh and depressing chapter with this wonderful celebration of African women in the Caribbean and their culture. Yeah. You know, uh, and she writes, but their main achievement was the development of a politics of self-reliance, grounded in survival strategies and female networks. These practices and the values attached to them redefined the African community of the diaspora. They created not only the foundation for a new female African identity, but also the foundations for a new society committed against the capitalist attempt to impose scarcity and dependence as structural conditions of life to the reappropriation and concentration in women's hands of the fundamental means of subsistence, starting from the land, the production of the food, and the intergenerational transmission of knowledge and cooperation. Mm -hmm. So good. I'm just going to say that last part again. The concentration in women's hands of the fundamental means of subsistence, starting from the land, the production of food, and the intergenerational transmission of knowledge and cooperation. Something we could all aspire to. 
Yeah. So that brings us to the end of chapter two. There's been a lot that we've gone through in this, and there's a lot there's a lot to assimilate and a lot of threads to follow into more learning about all of these aspects of the birth of capitalism. Next time, we're going to be talking about chapter three, which is called The Great Caliban, The Struggle Against the Rebel Body. The ideology that was forming around the body being a machine for work and how that had to displace older, more animistic, pre-enlightenment conceptions of what the body was about. Mm -hmm. So more bad news, but also (laughs) very important and generative things to think with. So that's going to be next time. All right. See you next time.